Hey, wouldn't it be great if we were able to travel back in time? I think it would be really interesting to go back in time to say December 31st, 2019, just before New Year's uh, 2020, to go back and, you know, check in with a friend and say, hey, I just traveled back from April 24th, 2022. And uh, I wanna tell you what you can expect in 2020. Uh, here's what you can expect for large chunks of 2020. You won't be able to go to work. Your workplace will be closed. Your kids won't be able to go to school. You'll have to homeschool your kids. Businesses will be closed. And uh, for the stores that are open, shopping is gonna be like a nightmare. It's gonna be really hard to find uh, toilet paper. And uh, you won't be able to travel anywhere. You're gonna be stuck at home. And um, by the way, you won't be able to hug anybody because you gotta stay six feet apart. Oh, and also a bit of advice. You might wanna look into investing in this little tech company called Zoom. Uh, they're probably gonna go places in 2020, right? Your friend, my friend would look at us and say, well, that's insane. That couldn't possibly happen. But you know, during these last two years, so many of us have indeed experienced loss in this season of COVID. We've all lost things that we previously just counted on, things that we really just took for granted. And some of the things we've lost are temporary. Others are permanent. Some people lost uh, income, some lost jobs, some lost their businesses altogether, some lost their health, some lost their lives. Maybe uh, you have kids or uh, grandkids who lost their graduations. They couldn't have a graduation ceremony and instead they had to settle for something uh, digital or not at all. Loved ones lost the opportunity to be with dying family members in their last days in the hospital and nursing homes. Tragic, real stinging, painful, deep losses, both temporary and uh, permanent. And so now here we are, uh, two plus years later. And what I sense uh, among many people right now is kind of a, kind of going through a reassessing, almost like a, a winnowing process of sorts where people are just asking, well, what can I count on? What is secure? What really is stable? And what really does matter? You know, we, we all lost things that we, we thought were so secure, but apparently were actually far shakier than we thought. Jesus is so brilliant and his teaching is just so always on point and always so relevant and uh, practical. I was reading the other day from uh, the Sermon on the Mount and there were three verses that I saw, three verses, that, back to back to back verses that I thought, it's like Jesus had this era in mind, this COVID uh, time frame. This comes from Matthew. Chapter five, Jesus said, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. <laughs> and who among us haven't felt like that uh, once or twice or multiple times 
in the last two plus years. Like we're at the end of our rope. I can't take this anymore. Well, with less of you and your rope, Jesus says, with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Less of you and your rope and more of God and his rule. You're blessed. It's not a bad place to be. There's blessing there. Jesus says you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. When you've lost those things that you just count on, that you rely on, when you lose those things and you, you grieve the, the loss of that, well, Jesus says there's blessing there. That's not a bad place to be because only then can you be embraced by the one who is most dear to you. So when you lose the ability to embrace others because you're six feet away, well, there's an opportunity uh, where in a powerful sense, you can be embraced by the one who is most dear to you. You're blessed, Jesus says, when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. And so over these next few weeks, we wanna think about some things that can't be bought. We wanna think about some things that are unshakable, un breakable, untakeable. And by the way, I know that's probably not a word. It's dubious at best, whether it's a word or not. If it is a word, it probably shouldn't have the E, but then it just looks like untackable. So I thought if we're gonna use a, a dubious word to name this series, let's at least spell it in such a way that makes sense. So um, I feel like maybe we've kind of coined a new, uh, a new term here. And so we wanna take these next few weeks, these kind of pre-summer weeks and look at some untakeable things, some things that are unshakable, unbreakable, untakeable, steadying, anchoring truth that hold us steady, hold us firm, that propel us forward, regardless of what kind of changes might be taking place around us. And as I thought about these things, I thought about, there were four things really that came to mind. We could have a, a long list of things that, you know, in Christ, in the gospel are absolutely untakeable. But I thought of four, um, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, our identity in Jesus, and the love of God. These things, unshakable, unbreakable, untakeable truths that steady us and anchor us and hold us firm and move us forward regardless of what is changing around us. Uh, I'm sure you noticed some quotes on the screen just before we uh, entered into this teaching time. And uh, there were quotes about forgiveness from varying perspectives and various people as well as some uh, relevant scripture passages to kind of get our mind engaged in this first thing that we want to look at, this idea of forgiveness. But before we look at the biblical idea of forgiveness as an untakeable, unshakable, unbreakable truth, I want to acknowledge the fact that for some, maybe even for many, forgiveness is really a a very dangerous message. They consider it a very risky message. In, um, in just about exactly one month, it will be the two-year anniversary of the 
killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And, uh, you know, you probably saw that video. I know I certainly did. The video of former police officer Derek Chauvin with his knee pressed to the neck of George Floyd as he lay on the ground. And that video was one of the most chilling, um, horrifying, merciless things that I've ever seen. And to hear the cries from Mr. Floyd, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And to hear the cries from the, from the bystanders pleading with this officer to, to stop choking the life out of this man, you're killing him. Well, for many in the black and brown communities in St. Paul, uh, Minneapolis, you know, forgiveness might seem like a pretty dangerous message. You know, do we forgive only to see uh, racial inequality and racial injustice persist with very little accountability for hundreds more years? And of course, following that uh, killing of George Floyd, there was a number of, of protests and demonstrations that summer and following in, in St. Paul and Minneapolis and elsewhere, really around the globe. And um, some of it turned uh, riotous, including with uh, the destruction of property and, and things like that. And, you know, I, I certainly don't condone the destruction of property or rioting or protests that are not peaceful but you really can't have a conversation about the destruction of property without first at least having a basic understanding of the history of racial inequality and racial injustice and social inequality and social justice and white privilege. And you know what, if that, if that were my son lying there or my brother or my dad, and if I thought for even two seconds that I could alert some help or alert some attention by smashing a window, I would smash a window. And I want to say that I have the utmost respect for police officers. I've got friends who are police officers and, and we have family in policing. And the vast, vast majority of police officers do their absolute best to, to maintain uh, law and order and to serve and protect in their communities with, with dignity and honor and sincerity. And it's officers like this former officer, Derek Chauvin, and others like him. Um, and we actually don't know how many others there are like him because we only know about him because what he did got captured on video. And, and would we have known anything about him had it not been for that video? And what would have become of this situation with Mr. Floyd had it not been captured on video? But it's officers like former officer Chauvin who make it so much more difficult for good and decent officers who have to bear the, the blowback of all of this outcry. And so for many in black and brown communities, forgiveness seems like a dangerous message. It seems like, like an invitation for more of the same kind of treatment. And you know, I'm, I'm here in Sobble Beach uh, right now. Um, and so for people who are in Sobble Beach or for people who live in the Incan Garden, which is the community that, that I live in, 
Or maybe in the community where you live in, we might feel like we're kind of insulated and, and isolated from this, like this is a, a kind of an out there sort of a thing that really doesn't affect me and my family. But you know what? It does affect my family. It does. Because in many cases, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're black and brown and indigenous and people of color. And so racial inequality, racial injustice, social inequality, social injustice does affect my family. And even when people are not followers of Jesus, still they're image bearers of the divine. They are of unsurpassable worth. They're worth Jesus giving his life for. And so for some who live on the margins, this thought about forgiveness seems like a dangerous message, like by forgiving, they're simply inviting more of the same. Also, in one month's time, it will be another anniversary of sorts. It will be the, the one-year anniversary of a discovery that took place in the Kamloops at the site of a former residential school using technology, uh, ground-penetrating radar, was discovered what is believed to be the unmarked graves of 200 precious indigenous children at the, uh, at the site of this former residential school. And of course, since then, hundreds other such discoveries have been made uh, across the country. And this has brought, in the last 11 months, has brought just this whole new wave of grief and suffering in our First Nations communities at the atrocities that were um, perpetrated upon them really by, can we say, by the dominant culture, suffered by our First Nations in, in some residential schools, not all residential schools, but some residential schools. And so uh, there's conversations about truth and reconciliation, but sometimes when forgiveness is, is inserted into that conversation, it's considered kind of a dangerous thought because to forgive seems simply like we're inviting more mistreatment. And, you know, is it, is it a dangerous message? I'm pretty sure if you asked many Ukrainians right now, what their feelings are about the message of forgiveness, it might be considered that it's a, an offensive message, an irresponsible message, a dangerous message, an unthinkable message. To forgive would simply be as if to invite more violence. And there's many in the church for whom the, the biblical principle of forgiveness is a dangerous message as well. There are some in the church when they think of this biblical message of total forgiveness, and that's what the biblical message is, total forgiveness in Christ. Uh, there are many who feel that that's dangerous. They feel it's a dangerous message because in their minds, it's just gonna lead to more sin. If you tell somebody, if you teach somebody that they're totally forgiven in Christ, it's gonna be like a green light to them, an invitation to them just to sin more. Like a, like a spiritual get-out-of-jail-free card. And so for some, when they hear this message of God's total forgiveness, or when they hear the message that we are under grace, when they hear the message of the fact that we are completely accepted by God, 
They just sort of imagine that it's going to lead to all kinds of sin, that it's going to kind of lead to an attitude of, well, who cares then? Let's eat and drink and be merry because uh, uh, behavior doesn't matter because we've got total forgiveness in Jesus. And so this morning, as we, as we think about this untakeable forgiveness of God in Christ, and that is ours, that steadying, anchoring, unshakable, unbreakable, untakeable truth that holds us firm and propels us forward. Well, we want to acknowledge the fact that it's not embraced by all, certainly by some, it is seen as something that's dangerous. And so this morning, as we, as we, um, kind of get into this, we, we want to ask that question. Is, is the message of biblical forgiveness, total forgiveness, is it, is it too dangerous to believe? Is it too dangerous to, um, to preach? Or is the message of forgiveness, is it too easy? Do we need to dig a moat around forgiveness to make it more difficult for people to access? Do we take the message of grace and um, you know, build walls around it, build border walls around it to make it more difficult for people to access it so we can prevent it uh, from being abused and taken advantage of? You know, really, that's what, that's what legalism is in a nutshell. That's what legalism does. Legalism builds a moat around Forgiveness digs a moat around forgiveness and says, yes, there's forgiveness available, but you're going to have to, you're going to have to do some things to demonstrate that you're worthy of that forgiveness. And you're going to have to swim across this moat. And legalism is building walls and barriers around grace to say, yes, God is gracious. There is grace, but we're going to protect it. We don't want to people taking advantage of it. And so you got to climb this wall and you got to, you got to jump through these hoops um, in order to access that. So what we want to talk about is the biblical message of once for all forgiveness, the message of total forgiveness. This is, this is the message that my past sins are forgiven. The past sins that I remember are forgiven. The past sins that I have forgotten are forgiven. The past sins that I've confessed are forgiven. The past sins that I haven't confessed are forgiven. My past sins are forgiven. And my today's sins are forgiven. The sins that I've already committed today are forgiven. And the sins that I have yet to commit today are already forgiven. My sins of tomorrow, already forgiven. My sins of next week, next month, next year, next decade, already forgiven. Total forgiveness, once for all forgiveness. That in Christ, I'm forgiven for yesterday's sin, today's sin, and even tomorrow's sin. Total forgiveness, once for all forgiveness. That is the biblical message of forgiveness. If you read in the book of Hebrews, which is a, an, a wonderful book to get a fuller understanding of forgiveness, what the author of Hebrews does is he contrasts uh, two kinds of forgiveness. There's the kind of forgiveness that is progressive. It's the kind of forgiveness that we associate with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. 
the kind of forgiveness that is day after day, it's little by little, it's again and again and again as Jewish people would go and make sacrifices for their sins. And they would get forgiven, or at least their sins would get covered. And we know in the, whole, the Old Testament, we read about the, um, the Day of Atonement, uh, that special day of the year where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and would apply blood to the mercy seat so that the sins of the nation would be atoned for that year. And then he would do it again uh, the, following, the following year. Forgiveness that is progressive, it's again and again, little by little, over and over and over again, religion, forgiveness with built-in redundancies. And so the author of Hebrews contrasts that with what we as followers of Jesus have. He says we have something greater. We as followers of Jesus have something better the uh, writer of Hebrews says. And so he describes the new covenant and says it's a better covenant. It's based on better promises. A new covenant that was inaugurated at the cross. I mentioned the, the old covenant and the day of atonement when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and would apply blood to the mercy seat. Well, in the new covenant, the cross becomes the new mercy seat. And blood is applied, and it's the blood of Jesus, and it's applied once for all, a final sacrifice that makes all other sacrifices and all other religion redundant and unnecessary. And so the blood of Jesus is shed on the cross once for all. And because of that shed blood of Jesus, we have... Um, we have an atonement at one meant with God, and we receive it through faith. A new covenant, the author of Hebrews says, a better covenant founded on better promises. And one of those better promises of the new covenant is the fact that we are forgiven once for all. Once for all, not again and again, not little by little. This is Christianity 101. But you know, there are many people who are still kind of thrown uh, with this possibility that tomorrow's sins are already forgiven. That's really, for some, where the rub is, uh, where the conflict kind of arises. And some will say, well, I'm certainly all for the message of forgiveness, but when you say that my sins of tomorrow and my sins of next week and next year and next decade are already forgiven, well, isn't that going to kind of lead me down a wrong path? In other words, if my future is already taken care of with regard to guilt and punishment and forgiveness, then What's to stop me from just going out and abusing that? What's to stop me from just going out and sinning all the more? And we know that's not a new question. That, in fact, is an ancient question. Paul had to address that question with, with the Romans because they were asking the very same thing. Romans um, 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And, and uh, the implied answer uh, that Paul gives is no, no, a thousand times no. But notice that grace does increase. 
I mean, at least that's the implication in, in Paul's question. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to ask it. Grace increases as sin abounds. We learn that in Romans 5.20. That's what it says. As, as sin abounds, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You cannot compete against the grace of God and win. Think of it like a tug of war. So you've got a rope with you on one end and your capacity to sin. And on the other end, you've, you've got the grace of God. You cannot compete against the grace of God and win. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. You cannot out-sin the blood of Jesus. And so this is why some Christian people will become really nervous at this point and think, well, this message is really dangerous. People are going to take advantage of it. But I believe that what we're going to see as we, as we think about this untakeable, uh, unshakable, unbreakable, steadying, anchoring truth of the forgiveness of God, I think what we're going to find out from the scripture is quite the opposite, that not only is it not a dangerous message, and not only does it not lead us to more sin, it actually leads us to love God more and to love people more. And so today we want to, uh, you know, we want to hear from Jesus on this. And I, I think what we're going to hear Jesus say about this is um, that this once for all forgiveness, rather than it causing us to sin more, causes us to love him more and causes us to love people more. It, 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 it inspires us. It propels us to a new way of living. When I was a kid, um, admittedly, I was a pain. I was the seventh of seven kids. And I am quite certain that I gave my parents more consternation than all six of my siblings put together. I just seemed to always get into trouble. I didn't necessarily mean for that to happen, but it just seemed to be that way. My first trip to jail, accompanied by a police officer into a jail, was before, uh, before I was even in high school. So that, that's not good. Just constantly getting into trouble. Now, by the time I got to toward the end of high school, I had begun to see, my eyes had kind of become open to the fact that the trajectory of my life was not leading into a, any kind of a good place. And earlier, when I was a kid, I had, I had accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. And so by the time uh, I'm almost to the end of high school, I'm now aware that that is what I need to return to that the only way my life is going to have meaning and purpose and value and peace and joy is to, again, center my life on Jesus. And so even by the time I was near the end of high school, I was at least toying with the idea of, of uh, heading off to Bible college. And so I just uh, I got into all kinds of uh, trouble, caused my parents no end of uh, heartache and grief. I'd always from a little kid, I always had a heart for the underdog. When I started in grade one, which was in 1970, you can do the math. I started actually in grade one at a brand new school in Meaford called St. Vincent Euphrasia Elementary School. It was a school designed by hippies. It was like we were the first group of students to inhabit this brand new building designed by hippies. It was all open concept. There was no walls any, anywhere inside, all open. 
It was like, uh, yeah, man, we don't want to inhibit the kids with walls, right? And uh, so it was like a kind of like a hippie school, experimental, open concept. And uh, so the kids were to be all chill and the teachers were to be all chill. Um, the only trouble was I still had great capacity to, to frustrate teachers. And uh, there were teachers there who, um, it was like a collision of two worlds, some really old school teachers in this very hippie kind of modern uh, school idea. And so in this school, I actually got a lot of spankings. There were to be no spankings in this uh, hippie school, but I got a lot of them. I remember on one occasion, it was in grade two. I can't exactly recall what kind of um, mischief or trouble I had caused, but there was a point at which my teacher, so frustrated, grabbed me and I didn't see it coming. This was kind of from behind, flipped me over her knee and she began wailing away, peed my pants like on the spot. That was not a good day. There was not to be a strap at this school, like maybe you had the strap uh, when you were in public school. This school was not to have any straps, but my grade four teacher, well, he was pretty uh, creative. He was kind of old school. So he had this pinky racer, you know, pinky racers, like those, those little erasers with the uh, angled um, ends. Well, he had one of those, except it was about this long and it had good whip to it. And so if there was a kid bugging uh, him or misbehaving, he would have that kid put his hand out and he would, he would snap that eraser on that kid's hand. Kids would cry or grimace or be in pain and they would only get that one uh, whack. But when it came to me, um, I was so stubborn. There was something in me that didn't want to give him the satisfaction of knowing that I felt any pain from that. And so he would hit and I wouldn't flinch. I wouldn't make a face. And he would hit again and again, sometimes three and four times. And I never gave him the satisfaction of knowing that I had any discomfort whatsoever. I'd be crying inside, but um, he would never know it on the outside. I wouldn't let on. So I always, always just had a heart for the underdog for some reason. I couldn't stand bullying. I guess I always just had kind of a sense that how hard that must be for kids who were bullied. And so when I started in grade one, I started with a kid, I'm gonna call him Bobby, not his real name, because as far as I know, he still lives in Meaford. But uh, Bobby, um, I didn't know it at the time, but Bobby was developmentally delayed and uh, I didn't know it at the time, but he came from a rather troubled family. I didn't know that. I just knew that Bobby was uh, different. Bobby uh, stuttered. Kids would tease him, pick on him, bully him. And the more that that happened, the more that he would stutter, he would begin to cry. And when he began to cry, he would, he would literally call out for his mommy to come and help him. When I was in grade one, in early grades, it didn't make me mad. It just kind of made me sad for him. And so whenever I could, I would, I would, I would try and defend Bobby. And, uh, you know, we went to school together right from grade one in that new hippie school all the way through the end of high school. So it was kind of like my school career sort of to look out for Bobby. And as I mentioned, um, when I got toward the end of high school, there came a point in grade 12 where I really rededicated my life to Jesus and made some significant changes in my life. I quit drinking and quit smoking. I broke up with a girl that I was dating at the time and, and tried to change um, the way that I was living. And my parents were very thankful for that. But even after that, I got into trouble. And it had to do with Bobby. 
It was one day, um, as I said, I was in grade 12, I was 17 at the time, and uh, my locker was kind of at the back of the school near the smoking doors, and uh, I was at my locker, and I noticed down one of the halls, there was a kid who was picking on Bobby, teasing Bobby. And this kid had, had a little group of friends around kind of egging him on. And I could see that, that Bobby was scared. Uh, he was close to beginning to cry. And in that moment, my, uh, my amygdala became fully engaged. That's the thing in your brain, that fight or flight thing. And I wasn't gonna flight. And so I ran down to where Bobby was and I got between Bobby and this bully. And I said some things, I can't tell you what I said on this video. Um, it was colorful, uh, to say the least. This kid pushed me. I pushed him back. He took a swing at me. Thankfully, he missed. I unfortunately took a swing at him and did not miss. And my fist landed hard and flush against his nose. And uh, I am not a medical expert in any sense, but I'll tell you that was that was gross. It was almost like feeling that nose explode um, under my fist and hearing like what I guess would be maybe the snapping of cartilage and the, the spraying of blood. And um, it, was, it was actually pretty horrifying. Bobby, he took off, took off running. Bully drops like a rock. Two seconds later, there's a teacher there. All the bystanders are pointing at me, saying, that's the guy. Down to the office, police are called. My dad's at work, so my mom is the one who has to go to the police station. Not her first time having to do this. I was heartbroken for her. And what I was putting her through again, after so clearly not ever wanting to, to cause my parents kind of grief and pain again. Well, there was conversation about the potential of charges and those kinds of things. Thankfully, that didn't happen. I had to apologize to the kid I punched, had to apologize to his parents. When his parents found out what the, what the kid did, uh, they weren't very impressed. And um, so anyway, I was able to go home with my mom and I thought, uh-oh, there's gonna be some real serious consequences about this. In fact, in my mind, I thought this is the thing that's gonna break, this is the straw that's gonna break the camel's back. They're gonna, they're gonna ask me to leave. They're gonna essentially kick me out because of this. And so I got home and in that conversation with my mom, long story short, she forgave me. And there were no further consequences. She forgave me fully. And I didn't expect that. I didn't expect her to. In fact, I didn't feel like I deserved that. But when my mom forgave me that night, she took a risk because maybe he'll do it again. Maybe a week from now or a month from now, he'll punch somebody else in the nose. Maybe he'll just go around willy-nilly punching people in, in the nose because I've forgiven him. She took a risk in extending that kind of forgiveness to me and yet, I had no desire whatsoever to repeat that offense. And I haven't, and I don't intend to. I've had enough of that. Have you ever had a moment in your life where 
Someone has extended forgiveness to you and you didn't feel like you deserved it. Well, if you can't think of it, an example in, in, in human terms, you can, certainly, you can certainly celebrate the fact that God has forgiven you. It's a powerful thing. And so I guess the question you know, that we could ask in thinking about this is, is God more powerful than my mom? Or more, not more powerful, is God more merciful than my mom? Certainly God's more powerful than my mom. But is God more merciful than my mom? Is God more gracious than my human earthly mom? Is God more forgiving? than what I experienced that night? And of course, the answer is a resounding yes. There is no question from Scripture that we are totally forgiven by God. Here's a verse, check this out. This is Colossians 2.13. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Notice the past tense, forgave. Notice the word all. And then this from John, this is 1 John 2, uh, 12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Here again is Paul, this is in Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So here we see in this Ephesians passage and the, and the Colossians verse that we just had up there, this God forgave you, uh, past tense. Now, I suppose we could kind of play around with this and say, well, yeah, it's past tense. Therefore, maybe only your past sins are forgiven. And maybe you've heard people say that or even teach that, that when you get saved, when you uh, surrender your life to Jesus as Lord, some would say that your past sins are all forgiven up to that point. But then from that point going forward, it's kind of up to you to stay forgiven, to stay cleansed. You need some kind of a bar of soap to get more forgiveness and more cleansing. You need some, some, something like, uh, some, uh, like, a, like a Protestant, version of mass to stay forgiven and to stay uh, cleansed, that you need to engage in some kind of a cleansing ritual of sort, some, something that you do, some kind of an apology-based system. Like they would say, your, your past sins, uh, all forgiven. That's, that's a blood-based forgiveness. Your sins going forward, well, that's an apology-based uh, forgiveness. And you know what? That has never made any sense to me. Because think of it this way. When Jesus was on the cross, dying for your sin, how many of your sins were yet future? All of them, right? So is this what the Bible teaches, that God forgives our past sin, but then from that point of salvation on, we need, to, we need, we need our own system an apology-based system. Well, I, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches us. Maybe we've learned that through tradition or um, in, in some other ways, but I, I don't think there's any question at all that our future sins are already forgiven. Listen to this from, from Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Notice that word sanctified. What does that word mean? Sanctified means to be set apart. And you, as a child of God, 
You are set apart. You have been set apart, specially reserved for God. By one offering, by one offering of Christ, he's perfected, you've received perfect forgiveness. You've been perfectly cleansed. You've been made perfectly new. For how long? For all time, all time for those who have been set apart. So, in my opinion, you can go ahead and toss out the window all the, all the chatter about needing to get more forgiven and stay more forgiven through something that you do. That, let's call that fake news, all right? I don't think that's the reality of God's word. So you might say, well, that sounds like a very dangerous message, maybe too dangerous. And so that's kind of the question that we've come to today. As I mentioned uh, earlier, we wanna ask Jesus about this and hear what he has to say. And I think what we'll hear from Jesus is that this message of forgiveness, not only is it not too dangerous to, to believe and to share and to preach, Jesus is gonna say, on the contrary, it is the gift of my once for all forgiveness that will inspire you and motivate you and propel you to love me more and to love other people more. In fact, here's, here's kind of our point for today. God's forgiveness propels our love for him and for other people. In Luke 7, Jesus tells a story. It's a short story. And if you're not familiar with the scene in, in Luke 7, Jesus has been invited to the home of a Pharisee. His name is Simon. And Simon has wanted to, to chat with Jesus over lunch. If you follow Jesus in the Gospels, you will know that uh, he, he went everywhere that he was invited. If he was invited to the home of a prostitute or a tax collector, he would go. He gained a reputation because of that as a friend of sinners, which was a badge that he wore with honor. But here in Luke 7, he's invited to the home of this prominent Pharisee, uh, Simon. And so they're, they're, uh, Jesus is there. They're having lunch together and a woman shows up, a woman with a very bad reputation. And obviously it seems like she's been engaged in some sort of sin, uh, probably a sexual sin of some sort. Perhaps she was a prostitute. Uh, she might have been maybe kind of like that Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well who'd had kind of a string of husbands. And you know maybe this woman was engaged in some kind of immorality according to the Jewish law. We really don't know the details, but what is clear, this woman had a very bad reputation in town. And so she learns that uh, Jesus is in this home. And so she shows up and she shows up with her most precious possession, which was a very, very valuable alabaster jar filled with uh, perfume. And she rushes into the house and she begins to attend to Jesus and to care for him. And she demonstrates faith in Jesus and she treats him with such love and, and care and respect and exhibits beautiful care for him and treating Jesus with grace. And at this point, Simon the Pharisee is just aghast. In fact, he's just ticked right off and he, he thinks to himself, doesn't this teacher, doesn't this Rabbi, doesn't this so-called prophet, doesn't he know who he's hanging out with? Doesn't he know who he's letting touch him? Doesn't he know how disgusting this person is that he's letting touch him? And this is where we pick up with the response of Jesus. And let's follow along as Whitey reads it for us. 
Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your, your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust off my feet, but she washed them with the tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven, little shows only little love. Do you see the connection that Jesus is drawing here? By the way, does Jesus seem anxious or stressed out or, you know, uh, nervous about too much forgiveness? No. Does he seem to be worried in any way that if you're forgiven too much, then you'll end up sinning too much? Well, no, he's not, he's not bothered uh, about that in the slightest. In fact, he's teaching us the opposite. What he's teaching in this story is that if you feel like you're forgiven little or, or partial, then you'll love little. You'll love partially. And don't we see that? I think in the church at large today that there is a lack of love at times in congregations. Could it be because we don't understand our forgiveness? See, if we're under legalism, we're going to teach people and treat people legalistically. So if we, if we are under a the idea that we are partially forgiven by God, well, then we're going to love partially. We're going to forgive partially, love people partially. And if we're under the idea that we are um, under a conditional forgiveness with God where we must do our part first, where we need to show up and apologize and then he'll forgive us, well, what we're going to do is we're going to turn around and we're going to forgive others but only when they show up and apologize. And is that what we are to be doing? Forgiving people conditionally? Offering forgiveness to people with strings attached? Well, no. I don't forgive people because they change. I forgive people because God forgave me before I ever changed my behavior one little bit. You know, Paul said in Romans 5.8, while we were Yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we display to others what we ourselves are receiving. We display to others what we ourselves are receiving. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that if, you, if you've been forgiven little, if you believe you've been forgiven little, well, then you're going to love little. If you feel like you've been forgiven much, well, then you're going to love much. And I love how Jesus wraps up this story. Here's Whitey to read the conclusion of the story. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table 
said among themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How great is that? You know, this would be a good time for us just to think to ourselves, you know, this question, how big are my sins? How many are my sins? You know what? If you, like me, have many sins, big sins, what an incredible opportunity that we have to celebrate the bigness of God's forgiveness and to love, not little, but to love much, to love God and to love others in proportion to the size of our forgiveness that we now enjoy. We're gonna leave it there for today. So today's point, God's forgiveness propels us to love him and other people. It propels our love for him and for other people. This unshakable, unshakable, unbreakable, steadying, anchoring truth of the once for all forgiveness of God in Christ, it propels us to love God and others. We've got two more points that we want to make about this, and, and uh, we'll, we'll save them for next week. Here's the first one we'll look at next week. God's forgiveness propels us to display godly qualities. And then the, the third one, which will be the second one that we look at next week. God's forgiveness propels our forgiveness of other people. So I hope you come back next week and join us as we uh, finish off some of these th thoughts about this beautiful, untakeable gift of God, forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross for us, becoming sin for us. You who knew no sin became sin, became our sin. In every way that we hurt others, each other, and in every way that we hurt ourselves, you became that. Every act of betrayal, every rape, every molestation, every murder, every lie, every theft, every war crime, you became so that we could become the righteousness of God in you, Jesus. You who were pure, sinless, spotless, became this so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, Jesus, we thank you for the forgiveness that you provided for us on the cross. Once for all forgiveness, total forgiveness. Help us to embrace joyfully and with gratitude the enormity of this gift of forgiveness. And may we today and this week love you and love others in proportion to the size of that forgiveness. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be radical, outrageous lovers of God and others. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.